This podcast deals with violence and contains graphic descriptions that may be triggering for sensitive listeners. Shop owner Hilal Ainab is taking what's left of his stock and leaving. His was one of the stores targeted during the looting of foreign-owned businesses. The situation is so tense, police officers on rest days have been recalled. Eyewitnesses say an angry crowd gathered in front of this shop on Monday night. When they began throwing stones, the Somali shopkeeper retaliated by firing into the crowd. There is looting uh, in the whole of Soweto. One of the bullets hit 14-year-old Spiwe Mahori. He later died on the scene. It's the end of winter in Snake Park, Soweto. On a bent patch of grass outside the Waka Waka shop, the kids want to perform for our microphones. On this street, the Waka Waka shop is impossible to miss. It is a square, concrete building painted as blue as the sky on this sunny afternoon in September. The daily exchange of cash for cold drinks and airtime flows between the hands of the immigrant shopkeepers and the locals. Five years ago, on the 19th of January 2015, an argument that began here, outside the Waka Waka shop, spiraled out of control. Before the end of that day, small shops like this one had been attacked and looted. And in the midst of this, a 14-year-old boy named Spio Mahori was shot and killed. Over the next few days, media reports say that more than 150 people were arrested, most of them for the violence and looting of foreign-owned shops. At the end of the unrest, at least six more people were killed. Two of them were foreign shopkeepers and one, a 13-month-old baby who had been trampled to death in a nearby township. It was yet another major wave of attacks aimed at foreign-owned shops. Five years later, most South Africans remember the shooting of a teenage boy by a foreign shopkeeper and the violence that came after. But not much else. Never his name or his face. Why did Spiwe or the six others have to die? You are listening to One Night in Snake Park. My name is Elliot Moleva. Can you tell me what are you doing? Here. Yes. I'm selling fruits. Only fruits I'm selling. It's a sunny afternoon in spring, five years after the killing of Spio Mahori. Reporter Rasmus Bits hangs out in front of the Waka Waka shop. He is originally from Denmark, hence the accent. 
you will hear his voice throughout the series. A few meters away, Grace Mlambo is selling fruits under a sun-bleached umbrella. Uh, apples, pear, oranges, narkis, avocado, bananas. Today is a peaceful day, and it feels like those news clips of five years ago describe another world. But they don't. Normally, customers just walk in and browse through the shelves and pay for their goods at the back of the shop. But today things are different. No one is allowed inside. Instead, cash and groceries are passed through thick iron bars at the entrance. From inside the shop and behind the bars, the shopkeeper looks out, scanning the area. Things are brewing again in the township this week. Events that remind one of 2008, when the first massive wave of xenophobic attacks left more than 60 people dead and over 100,000 displaced. The shopkeeper knows all of this. He also knows what happened right here in Snake Park in 2015, right outside this very shop, and that those attacks have continued. In fact, this week, shops in this neighborhood were looted. These days, the attacks often don't even make the news. When they do, it is only when something unusual happens. Thousands of people in Johannesburg have been arrested after riots and looting on Monday. Just like a few days before our visit to Snake Park in 2019, when attacks moved from the outskirts of the cities to the center of Pretoria and downtown Johannesburg, across the province, 10 people lost their lives. Shops in South Africa is becoming a common occurrence with no end in sight. When news of xenophobic violence spreads across the world, it goes fast. This is Sky News from the attacks in Johannesburg a few days earlier in September 2019. Why do you think they're doing it? What is to blame for this? Well, uh, our people are in poverty, and uh, they get tempted to believe simplest solution. But if we drive away the foreigners, we will work tomorrow. But the reality is that they are not Why do you think they are doing it? The journalist asks. What is to blame? Those are good questions. But is it even possible to begin to answer them while the chaos plays out right behind you? When the noise dies down, the TV crews leave too. Which is why most South Africans don't remember what happened in the case of Spur Mahori. Because the media, journalists like ourselves, move on. Twelve years after the attacks in 2008, the government has either been unable or unwilling to stop this cycle of violence. That's why this time we have gone back, back to the night of the killing, to find out what actually happened and maybe we can begin to understand why it keeps happening. The simplest explanation of Spewer's death was that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time because Spewer 
wasn't even meant to be in Snake Park when the violence began. Uh, we were supposed to go together, but he didn't come. This is Siabongam Tembu, but people call him Sia for short. He's 19 years old and lives in Snake Park. He is soft-spoken, tall, and built like an athlete. Spio was his best friend. Cycling, and particularly the township strip races, drag races for kids on bicycles, was what they used to do together. On the afternoon of the day when Spiwa died, the two boys had made plans to go to the neighboring township of Zola to race. I went and checked on him at his house. They said he was out. So you went to Zola? Yes, I did. Okay. Uh, thinking that we might catch up because he was a bit faster than me. It was not normal for Spiwa to miss a race. To understand why, you need to understand what cycling meant to the boys and what it still means to see ya. Are you following the Tour de France now? Yes, I was, I was even watching it last night. So I'm a big fan of Tour de France. Who do you hope will win? Uh, obviously, Alaphilippe. One day I'll hope to meet him and be like him, or even beat him. Sia first met Spiwe while riding his bike. I was coming back from school. I was riding my bike from here to, to Middlelands. Three guys that were chasing me, I was running away from them. The bike I was riding thought that it was theirs. When these guys were chasing me, they caught me and then they tried asking me questions. It was a bit aggressive. Then Spirit came to the rescue. He, he helped me and told them that, no, that bike, this bike was mine. That's how I made him. He wasn't scared of anything. That's, that's what I, uh, uh, I learned from him, that you shouldn't be scared more of life. This was the beginning of a friendship that evolved around bikes. Bikes they would fix together and upgrade with parts they worn from their races and other parts that they got, sometimes in questionable ways. I don't know if I should say some of the things we did together, but we'd sometimes like steal some parts and then use it. We always travel with spanners. It was Spiwe who taught Sia what he knows about bikes. Even at 14, Spiwe was a legend with his hands. Someone who could fix anything. A daredevil of sorts. He was a, like a, a stuntman. And even if Spiwe was also the first one to bring out the spanners and run off with a wheel belonging to someone else, nothing suggests that the 14-year-old boy could be leading a mob targeting foreign-owned spazas in a looting spree. At least, that was very hard to imagine for Sia, who was without his friend at the race in Zola. I went and raced without him, thinking that he would follow me. And then I went and raced, and then I won. As usual, I went to the back and check, checked how he ride, and then uh, I sprinted him out. That's when uh, I won. The next day, Sia watched the news as usual. His mother insists on it. He needs to understand what's going on in the world. Most of the time, whatever the news is, it is not about Snake Park. But that day was different. 
that is correct, Sakina. Well, I've been uh, in Soweto from around 6 o'clock Eyewitnesses say an angry crowd. Four foreign shop owners have been arrested. After Police officers on rest days have been recalled. One bullet hit 14-year-old's Piwe Mahori. He later died on the scene. I just couldn't believe it, even if I saw it on the TV. From one day to the next, Sia's friend had become international news. Suddenly, the police and reporters were swarming Snake Park. Everyone was there. Even the late Winnie Mandela came to pay her respects to the family. But as soon as the initial interest had died down and the camera crews had left Snake Park, Sepua was all but forgotten. At least, according to Spiwa's mother, who felt betrayed by the police, the court, the journalists, the politicians, and researchers like myself. I know this because she told me when I first met her. It was a sunny day in April 2016 that I found Nombuisel Entlani in her front yard washing a carpet. She was very polite and gave me time to explain who I was and why I was looking for her. I was working on a book with a small team. It was a series of oral histories about xenophobic violence in South Africa. I was interested in writing about her story, but Nombuiselo was very reluctant to speak to the media. She said that she had had a terrible experience in the past. The gist of it was that People like me, meaning journalists, had made all sorts of promises to get their story and then disappeared without a trace. One of them even promised they would write to the president so that the days Pio was killed could be turned into a national holiday. For some reason, she decided to hear me out anyway. He said to him to go to the shop to buy his cold drink. This is Nombuiselo, Spiwa's mother, and this is the family's account of what happened to their son that night. They sent him out to buy a cold drink, but he ended up dead. It's not only the tragic killing of her son and the journalist who abandoned the story that still troubles Nombuiselo. She's also upset at the police and our judicial system. All of them. All of them. My child is laying there, is, is laying there at the cemetery. He must take that person to the, in the prisoner. Put, them, put him in jail. Yes, but he didn't do that. This disappointment is shared by Spiwa's father, Den Mahor, who believes the case was stained by corruption from the beginning. That court, if you can ask, he says there's no one at that court who will tell you the truth. This is him speaking to Tanya Pampaloni, one of the editors of the book I was working on, and our translator, Nobantu Shabangu. Tanya is a journalist, originally from the US, and you will hear her voice throughout this series. By the time we spoke with Dan and Nombuiselo again, we had gotten hold of the court transcripts. But we could not prove that there was corruption involved in the case. We had no idea 
where to find the Somali shopkeeper who was let off with a suspended sentence after pleading guilty to culpable homicide. The family saw this as an injustice, perhaps adding injury to the daily injustice they felt, struggling to make ends meet. This was not how the free South Africa, Spiwa's father, Dan Mahori, had imagined would be when he fought against apartheid. And this was the story I set out to write for the book on xenophobia. Besides Tanya, the journalist you heard earlier, the book was also edited by senior migration researcher, Loren Landau. He's an expert on the politics of migration in Africa. And recently, I called him up to get his perspective on some of the things we found during the investigation. This was during the COVID-19 lockdowns, which made things more complicated than usual. Sorry, um, the difficulty of working in lockdown is that you are sharing uh, an apartment with uh, other people. In fact, I think you're in a better place than me because I'm... Yeah, I'm in a basement, but... I'm under the their living room, and so when the the dog runs around, it's a wood floor, you know. So we you hear every step, but yeah. <laughs> like me, Lauren Landa also saw the court transcripts and realized that they didn't really match Nombuiselo's vision of events. It was clear that there was a lot of pain in this mother's story and uh, a lot of accusations against different people. And I think for us, what's important to understand is is both her memory, how she makes sense of this, how she understands it, but not to fan the flames, not to make accusations against another individual or another group based on one person's recollections. It's those, those, that's part of what's been so dangerous all along, is that stories that are told once get amplified and people, as a result, get victimized. So part of, of looking for the documents was to understand a bit better what, what really went on. And when we did find the document, after trying for uh, a while, what picture emerged from that uh, in your interpretation? Well, what, what was immediately obvious, which is almost always the case with people's memories, is that we make sense of things in one way and that our memory is one story and the police records told a very different story. We realized that something was missing, both from the story that the family told us and from the court transcripts. We even got a tip off from somebody within the criminal justice system who told us that something was seriously wrong with this case and that we needed to look into it. That is what we were doing in 2019 when we spoke to Siabonga and the Mahoris and a new wave of xenophobic violence rolled across the country. But since 2019, the world has become a different place. The deadly coronavirus is spreading in China and to other countries across the globe. The pandemic caused by the coronavirus has changed the world, particularly the lives of the poor living in communities like Snake Park, where many we're already struggling to make ends meet. The threat of hunger and starvation has become a real issue for South Africa because of the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The state uh, has recognized that this But it was the killing of George Floyd by police in the US 
which has resonated throughout the world, all the way to the tip of Africa in the form of the Black Lives Matter movement. Of our support for George Floyd. The black man is hated everywhere. Physical representation and our support for Sandra Bullock. You cannot say South Africa first. We must say black first and defend the black lives everywhere, including here in South Africa. The starting point of this investigation can be described with a related question. Why do black lives in South Africa matter so little that we continue to allow the killing of both immigrants, largely from other countries in Africa, and locals to go on for decades? Or put even simpler, why did Spiwe Mahori have to die? Some who were close to Spiwe, like Siabonga, wonder what they could have done to save him. Uh, I was angry at myself because uh, uh, I was his best friend. That maybe I could have saved him when I, I went there early and taken him to the race. Maybe I could have saved him. Maybe he would have been saved. But Sia is wrong. As we would learn over the next few months, much bigger forces were at play than boys in the township. The problem was that most people close to the case were not willing to talk. They wanted to move on, to let the past be the past. But for Spiwa's friends and family, this has been difficult. I, I think it took me a while to get on my bike and go race. And he, he was the person who encouraged me to, to go for it. He also knew he knew the whole me better than anyone. Siabonga lost his friend, and the Mahoris lost their child. Even now, I'm not healed, but I'm trying. If I'm thinking about him, I'm going to feel that pain. I'm trying to heal that pain. More than five years after Spiwe died, moving on, seems harder than ever. The economy, and in turn, the poor, are suffering. Xenophobic rhetoric is on the rise again, and townships are on the edge. Next time on One Night in Snake Park. I was trying to speak to the boy. I was trying to speak to the boy. I, I was trying to tell the boy not to go to sleep. His eyes were rolling like, you could see which he, he, he's in pain and he couldn't talk. Like, you see. Reporting for this podcast by Tanya Pampaloni, Elliot Moleba, Neo Rahajani, and Rasmus Bits. Additional reporting by Paul McNeely, and recording assistance by Andreas Hammer Holmefield. Original score by John Batman. Editing by Rasmus Bits. 
Tanya Pompoloni is executive producer. Jedi Ramalapa is the editor-in-chief of Sound Africa.